Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Craig Moffitt and Michael Nathanson of Moffitt Nathanson, the founders and senior research analysts. Craig, it was just on Friday I said you and I don't get to talk enough, and here we are talking about the potential for a deal. Your reaction to this one? It, look, it, I think it's, it's inevitable. Um, it is a, a clear concession of defeat for AT&T. It just didn't work. Um, they paid too much. And, and by the way, congratulations to Ed for some terrific reporting over the weekend. Um, but, but now, I guess the question is, um, we know some cash has to come back to AT&T, but does enough cash come back to AT&T that it offsets the amount of, of uh, debt that this company supported for them so that they don't come out even more leveraged than they went in? Um, and I'm, I'm not sure they can do that. You know, you have to lever, AT&T's levered at four times, so they're going to have to lever the new entity at more than four times EBITDA or else even spinning it off makes the leverage problem at the stub left behind even worse instead of better. Craig, we've got to talk about what on earth went wrong here. Before we get into the details, the nitty-gritty of the future, what on earth went wrong here? Three years ago, $85 billion for these assets? Well, so two, two things went wrong. First, the strategy went wrong, and second, the price went wrong. But on the strategy... This is a company that said they understood that the legacy media business was about to enter a period of secular decline. Well, why on earth do you buy assets that are about to enter a period of secular decline? They said that about DirecTV, and then they said that about WarnerMedia. So strategically, it never made any sense. And then they made it worse by overpaying. So they came out of this business woefully overlevered and this is a company that is in the telecom business where there's a tremendous need for capital investment. And if you can't make the capital investment, your core business falls behind. And I think they're at least coming to terms with now they have to clean up the mess. But it's it's incredible. They spent close to $200 billion on these two companies combined, or $175 billion on these two companies combined. Um, and and they're, now they're selling them. I, as I said, there won't be a real price on this exit. Um, but uh, but it's clear that they've they've lost horrifically on both transactions. Michael Nathanson, is this the right way to clean up the mess? I think this. Good morning, by the way. Uh, I think it's the only way to clean up this mess because you know going through the, the potential other partners, there's really no one else. There's no one else. I'm surprised by the timing because you know I think HBO Max has potential to create more value, but AT&T couldn't wait. So I think this, this is a really good outcome for Discovery. That, that's my take on it. Well, but do you think that Discovery will be able, Michael, to charge the amount that would be necessary for subscription fees for streaming to compete with the likes of Netflix with this acquisition? Or do you think that this also could be viewed as just an ongoing mistake adding to the mess that was already created? Well, Lisa, you know, I was just looking at the market cap for Netflix and Disney. And you know, HBO Max, I'd say, is in the same league long term as those assets. They just haven't gotten there yet because they're not global. And I think you have a call option. If you're John Malone and David Zaslav, you're looking at this as, look, we have 100, whatever the valuation is, it's a call option. I'm getting HBO Max to that upper league. And then you have Discovery Plus, which is a, you know, it's a lower tier product that will be helped by CNN. So 
for them, I'm like, why, why not? You know, this isn't expensive. I know they're managed it well. Money is cheap. So, you know, given where Disney has moved to on streaming hopes, why wouldn't you try this? Michael, I'll come back to you in a second and ask you about the competition that would come from this particular tie-up for Netflix, for the Walt Disney Company, for Amazon Prime too. But, Craig, AT&T, what does the future look like now for you, for this company? Well, so, so they are a business that is now back to being a telecom business. They have a wireless business. Uh, and by the way, in that, they look a lot like Verizon. They're about uh, not quite as skewed wireless as, AT as Verizon because they still have a, a meaningful wireline business. Um, but their, their service revenue growth, excluding the pass-through selling of equipment, is negative one percent, and their uh, and their EBITDA growth rate in the last quarter was negative five point seven, um, and uh, and they're levered at four times EBITDA, and the rating agencies have said that the downgrade threshold is three point seven times. So um, so they are still facing an enormously steep uphill challenge, a massive challenge in the years ahead, and a massive challenge for the spin-off as well, Michael, to compete with what already exists. Only last week, we were talking about the pull forward, the challenges for the Walt Disney's, for the Netflix of this yep. world, and now we're talking about a new entrant into the sphere, a tie-up at least of something that already exists. Michael, just walk me through how you think this looks in a couple of years' time, and whether we've got to that point where consumers are already looking around and saying, eh, I don't need more than two. Yeah, well, John, you know, the bundle is going to keep losing subscribers, right? So you're going to have less people subscribing to the bundle. And, you know, I think what Discovery Plus is going to have to do is take new CNN news and the Turner Sports assets, put them into Discovery Plus, right, and make it a low enough price subscription product with advertising that keeps it within a, you know, a range of consideration, right? That's what's going to have to happen, like a 10 to $15 product supported by advertising as well. So, you know, to us, you know, in the near term, no doubt, what we said last week still holds true. Pull forward, reopening, you're going to see a slowing of subscriptions. You're seeing that right now. Longer term, as more people cut the cord, this is the only way out for both of these companies, right? They have to do this. Craig, that is the long-term, perhaps, view for the streaming industry. For the telecom industry, what is the long-term view? We are moving away from a sort of media mixed uh, model that we saw both uh, all of the major telecoms try. And we're moving toward 5G. We're moving toward the potential for infrastructure spending by the federal government. What's going to be the narrative that's driving the next 10 years of telecom in the U.S.? Yeah, Lisa, you're, you're right. I, I guess the narrative right now will, is whether 5G will actually prove to, um, to offer the opportunity for new revenues or whether it's just more of the same. You know, having done this for, for longer than I'd care to admit, every time you go through one of these cycles, there is the, the hope and the dream that this particular cycle, whether it's 2G, 3G, 4G, now 5G, will have all these new revenues associated with it that the old cycles didn't have, um, and therefore it will get to be a fundamentally better business. Um, and I think that's the hope this time around, that, that with 5G, whether it's some of the buzzwords now of mobile edge compute and all those kinds of things, will those be new sources of revenue? Um, let's hope so, because otherwise you're still in the business of just selling connectivity for a price, and unfortunately, the capital investment requirement goes higher and higher and higher each generation, and the revenue uh, historically has not. Michael, just before we go, what do you think Bob Chapek's yeah. thinking waking up this morning? 
I think Bob Shape is taking me up this morning. We probably need some more some more content, right? We probably need some more content to even broaden out Disney Plus a bit. Do you think you'd take a look at I this? Er- no, no, no. This, I think Craig and I'm, 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 I'm going to speak for Craig for a second. I know you hate that when I do that, John. But I think <laughs> if I'm, you know, and if I'm Comcast, if I'm Brian Roberts, I wake up. Bob Shape is not concerned. Like, it's not his problem. Yeah. Brian Roberts, right, Craig, is going to have to think about what does he do now. It's it's a real problem for Comcast because they find themselves in the same position that Discovery was in before this deal and that AT&T was in before this deal, which is the streaming future for them, it's Peacock, um, is subscale to to really compete. And this is potentially the last bite at the apple to get the scale that you need to be a serious player. So now what do you do? If these two walk down the aisle and tie the knot, Craig, do we get coverage at Moffitt Nathanson? Absolutely, and it'll be Michael's coverage, and then you won't have to wonder which of the two of us you talk to. Well, well, guys, guys, I finally get some more market cap. The past three years, my market cap has been given a Craig, and my coverage I know. has been I'm cut in coverage you know? at Viacom, and Discovery. I Do I have to call Dr. Phil? Seriously, Tom goes on leave, and then here we have uh, this dueling out. We're going to work it out. Exactly. Hey, Michael, exactly. Craig, it's going to catch up. Craig Moffitt, Michael Nasonson of Moffitt Nasonson. This is a joy, and this truly is a joy. Heather Boucher, a member of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors, joining us now after the president uh, did release an announcement talking about a child tax credit as part of the American Rescue Plan that would start going out uh, very soon to families that qualify. 88% of children in the United States automatically do fall under this provision. Heather, can you give us a sense of what this child uh, tax credit actually is and why you think it's important? Well, thank you, Lisa. You know, it's really exciting today that the president has announced that this new child tax credit will be um, directly deposited in most uh, accounts for families with children starting July 15th. That'll be about $300 for children under the age of six and $250 for for families with children over the age of six. That's up to those amounts. And so this has been an important part of the American Rescue Plan to help families, especially help families with children, which we know have the you know, higher expenses than other families, but to help them make ends meet. And um, it's very exciting that these payments, instead of coming once a year with your tax refund, they'll actually be directly deposited or sent out um, every month from starting in July. So this is part of the $388 billion American Rescue Plan, which is only funded uh, for so long. Basically, these will run out, and it really raises a question, how much is this a template for what the Biden administration is trying to accomplish later in the year as it moves towards some of its uh, child and family's agenda. I think that that is a great way of thinking about it. You know, we thought it was really important to do this this year, um, coming out of this crisis when so many families have been struggling so much. But this is a a really good policy in general. You know, a lot of other countries provide child allowances and the child tax credit is a version of that. It can help families um, when they need that extra help the most. And it helps all kinds of families. Um, So any any child um, can, can get this tax credit. So it'll be an important support for family budgets. Now, of course, as you mentioned, 
recently said this needs to be extended. And it's included in the American Families Plan that the president launched just a couple of weeks ago. So if this is used as a template, and just John Farrow has been talking about this a lot, as far as what the cutoffs are, how categories are going to be defined by income in order to receive supplemental aid or perhaps higher taxes on the other side. And for uh, the American Rescue Plan, it was $160,000 for couples filing jointly and 80000 for individual. Is that the annual salary that you expect to be the basis of additional plans later this year from the Biden administration? Well, all of this is still a work in progress. Um, we're just getting the program up and running, but certainly that is a starting place because that's what we're already doing. Um, these decisions will be negotiated um, in the months to come, but I think it's really important to keep in mind that all kinds of families need help when they have little kids. And we know that families you know, experience this extra burden, and so this is uh, support that will help them. You know, One of the things that's actually most exciting about this particular proposal is that uh, scholars estimate that it will have a significant reduction in child poverty, and particularly child poverty for black and Latino children. And so I'm eager to see uh, how that works in the months to come, to see the data come in. But I think it's a it's a really important policy that we can get out there uh, for all of those families who need it. As somebody who has raised two boys, I understand, and with child care, you know what a juggle that is and how challenging, frankly, how expensive it is. There is a question when you say the data rolling in, what data are you going to be looking for to view this as a success to help push whatever additional programs Biden plans to outline in future plans? Well, in the years to come, we'll be able to see this show up in the income statistics that the Census Bureau collects. Now, we won't get those numbers um, for, uh, you know, uh, until far into 2022. But um, so hopefully we will have passed the American Families Plan before then. But certainly we'll be watching that data as it comes in to see what, what happens to child poverty in the United States. You know, the United States has higher child poverty than most other countries of our economic level. And this is an important step forward to really helping those families with children make ends meet. It's a noble goal. And just sort of broadening out to the American Rescue Plan, there is a question of how well it's working and, frankly, how much it might be hindering indirectly some of the recovery. And I'm thinking in particular about the unemployment benefits, the idea that the enhanced jobless benefits have, some people argue, kept people away from the workforce because they earn more staying at home than going back to work. How much are you considering ramifications like that? How much do you buy that argument? argument. Well, the rescue plan that was put in place at the beginning of the year was designed to help us get through the pandemic. And we're not out of the woods yet. Um, almost six in 10 adults have received at least one vaccine shot. And we know that only about a quarter of um, people in their 20s and about a third of folks in their 30s have received their vaccines. So as we're getting everybody the shots, getting folks um, back into the labor force, those unemployment benefits are an important lifeline uh, for those folks who are not yet back at work. So we need to make sure that um, that we provide people what they need while they're out of work, while they're searching for a job. Of course, we're still um, more than 8 million jobs below where we were pre-pandemic. Jobs are starting to come back, and we've had a lot of progress there, but we still have a long ways to go. And that's what unemployment benefits are for, to help people um, while they're searching for work and to help folks during this pandemic. Well, Heather, just to sort of uh, wrap up here, though, we got that retail sales report on Friday that was highly disappointing. And some people pointed to the fact 
fact that some of these jobs cannot be filled. They cannot find the workers to come back to fill those roles. And that is, what ha is what's hampering some of the sales that otherwise would be taking place to encourage commerce. I mean, how much do you weigh these factors as you do weigh the health considerations, but also the economic ramifications? Well, here's the thing. We don't want to make too much about any one month's data point on the plus or the negative side. We know that this recovery is going to be a little bit bumpy. We turned off the economy really quickly in the spring of 2020, and we're turning it back on now. And so giving ourselves um, the time for everyone to get their shots, to get back into the labor force, to, to address the supply chain uh, constraints that we know are happening across the economy, this is what's happening right now. But, um, you know, when we look at the at the trends and the, you know, the larger, you know, when you put all the data together, what you see is an economy that's moving in the right direction. Created over 500,000 jobs per month over the past three months. That's more than the 60,000 per month in the pre three months prior. And, um, you know, we're moving in the right direction. So I think that it seems like the policies are working. It's helping families and businesses get up and running. And that was the goal. And now we just need to get those vaccines out and then make sure that we're connecting those workers back to employers. Heather Boucher, thank you so much for being with us and taking the time. Heather Boucher, Council of Economic Advisors member for President Biden. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, it's Vince Reinhardt, Mellon Chief Economist. Vince, it is tough for economists right now to get a decent read on this economy and come up with an estimate for what happens next. Let's just start there. How difficult it is to forecast this economy at the moment, Vince? Oh, inflection points are terrible. Remember, G-forces come into play when you're making a sharp turn. And we are definitely on the upside of the, of the V uh, for activity uh, to the point that we have to worry about, you know, uh, technical matters and things that macroeconomists just usually wave their hands over. Importantly, bottlenecks. You opened it well. Just go back to Friday's data for the U.S., Industrial production, good, but a little disappointing because of bottlenecks in the auto industry. Then we get the Michigan Inflation Expectation Survey with the eye-popping increase in the one-year-ahead inflation expectations. And five-year-ahead, 3.1%. That sounds to me like above the Federal Reserve's goal. We have higher prices. Vince, a question some people are asking. I'll ask it of you. Do you have any sympathy for the argument that higher prices now, whether they are driven by bottlenecks, supply issues, et cetera, lay the foundations for higher prices in the future? I think that's the risk. The Fed's bet is the, the effects of, uh, you know, the effects of base effects and bottlenecks will be a temporary uh, increase in prices, but it doesn't change the trend. The thing you should worry about is there are increases in prices of goods and services that are very salient to households. Just ask somebody about how much it costs to fill, fill up the tank of gas or how they're doing in getting plywood or is their new car coming in. Uh, those price increases may lead them to increase inflation expectations and increases in inflation expectations, to use the Fed's favorite phrase, is what anchors inflation. So if expectations go up, we'll get a re-anchoring to something above the Fed's goal.
And Vince, just to see how this could play out, it leads to people demanding more in wages or holding out for a higher salary because otherwise they cannot afford the basic staples that they go out and they buy every day. How much is that's what, that what's happening? I mean, people often say that it's people on the lowest tier of income uh, that get hit the hardest when you get this kind of inflation. Is that still true this time around, given some of the price increases, the wage increases that we've seen, particularly on the lower end of the scale? Okay, so... so Generally, inflation is thought to be very regressive. That was the lesson in the 1970s. Because people with more income and more wealth can figure out ways to shield their assets from inflation effects. And they probably have more pricing power to reset their own wages and salaries. Not so at the lower end uh, of, of the income spectrum, because low income people also just don't have a whole lot of wealth. Uh, so inflation is is pretty pernicious in, in that regard. And has it changed? No, not really. Income inequality has only gotten worse. So one would think that meant that the rising part uh, has even more means to shield themselves from, from inflation. Uh, so uh, in fact, the inflation is going to be eating into the real wages of low-income households. Is inflation going to lead to this sort of virtuous cycle where people actually spend more of their money since it's probably going to be worth more now in goods and services than later? Or is it going to lead to a dampening effect on the economy like what we're seeing in the housing market where you're seeing the actual sales slow due to the high prices? So those high prices probably reflect the inability to actually get all, the, all those goods. Think about the empty auto lots that are both slowing car production outright decline last month because they can't get the chips and auto sales, but also leading to price increases for, for used cars. Uh, that, that's the bottleneck effect. There are two other effects. One is timing. As you say, if you think prices are going to be higher next month, don't you want to buy the good or service this month. Um, households have a lot of wherewithal to spend, so you that what that may mean is the boom part of our rebound is even more vigorous. Then the last effect <clears throat> is the more permanent one, which is people just spend resources trying to avoid the effects of inflation. And that's just, as economists say, a dead weight loss. Vince, always great to catch up with you, sir, on the story at the moment and send our best to Carmen, won't you? Vince Reinhardt oh. there, Mellon Chief Economist. Thank you, sir. Let's bring in Chet Anaya, Morgan Stanley, Chief Global Economist. Chet, and arguably you and a team with one of the biggest calls, I think, for economists in the last 12 months, just to be out there, bold, constructive, confident, optimistic about the future, when many people weren't. That call's played out. Most people are on board. What's next, Chet? Well, Jonathan, I think the next one is that we're going to see a big pickup in the CapEx cycle globally. Um, that's in the U.S. as well as the rest of the world. And in terms of the numbers that we are highlighting is that the CapEx numbers globally will rise by about 21% by end of 2022 compared to pre-COVID levels. And in the US, it will rise by 16% compared to pre-COVID levels. And this is something that we have not seen in the last five cycles. In fact, even in the 90s, uh, which was known to be the last uh, big CapEx cycle, uh, we're going to do better than the 90s cycle as well. So yeah, looking forward to a strong pickup in CapEx now going forward. That will be the key driver to our global growth story.
which still remains constructive as well, Jonathan. How much could this uh, capital expenditure boost uh, GDP globally for the years after the rebound that we're seeing currently? So, Lisa, it will be it will depend upon uh, the the infrastructure spending uh, more than the the capex that we're expecting to see pick up in terms of business capex. Uh, and together with this uh, structural shift in uh, infrastructure spending that is going to come up, as well as the pickup in capex, we think the the global GDP could be boosted by about two tenths uh, on a structural basis. So that's the the, the assumption. But really, I think the, the bigger story is, you know, that this is going to be strong 12 months to 18 months because of this pickup in CapEx. How will shareholders respond? I mean, right now, just based on the AT&T and Discovery transaction, it seems like investors want to see bold moves. They reward them if they see the potential for uh, market share accretion. Do you get the sense that investors really want capital expenditures and are much more willing to, uh, to endure perhaps less of a cushion of cash? Well, I think this is uh, going to be an extremely uh, different environment compared to what we had seen in 2012 to 15, when there was a global slowdown and there were secular stagnation type of risks looming in the backdrop. Now, what this means for investors is that the capex pickup will mean that you're going to be going through a stronger growth and higher inflation, or call it higher pricing power, uh, higher nominal returns. So one has to think about it more from the perspective of the overall return profile in the economy that you're going to see for the corporate sector. And I think that's what will be uh, looked at by investors. So if you are investing for growth and you are going to get that top line growth, uh, I would think that the investors should be rewarding those companies uh, when they take up a, a, a CapEx in a big way. Chet, I'm being familiar with your research. You had said previously that you think these inflation pressures, price pressures will persist into next year. Is that still your view? And how does it reconcile with this big CapEx cycle you're expecting? Yeah, Jonathan. So I think in some ways, uh, the big pickup in CapEx will uh, put additional pressures on uh, inflation outlook. The way you have to think about this is that this pickup in investment will drive demand for labor. And it is coming in much faster than the previous cycle. And so you are going to see tighter labor markets with pickup in investment. And at the same time, uh, we are going through some accelerated restructuring, which means that the natural rate of unemployment has moved higher. And additionally, uh, this cycle, as you know, uh, we have seen a large amount of job losses in the low income segment. And therefore, when the Fed is looking at the headline unemployment, it is going to overstay, overestimate the underlying slack and pursue a easier monetary policy for longer. Uh, they are all looking for inclusive growth and want to have a high pressure economy, which will bring back that low income segment back into workforce. But that, what that will mean is that from a demand side, you have a big pressure with job, strong job growth. And on the supply side, you have these restructuring aspects which will put wage, wage pressures and therefore inflation will also come back much early. Chet, and just so quickly, point, just to jump in, because we only have a couple of minutes left, there was a few assumptions there, and I want to pick up on one, because I think it got a lot of people's attention too. Nairu, where do you think that is? Some people question whether it even had a three-handle in the last cycle. Where do you think it is? Right now, unemployment at 6.1%. Where are you and the team calling for that to kick in? So we think that, you know, around 4.5%, is when you should see uh, typically wage pressures building up. Uh, that's in uh, all the previous cycle that we have seen that uh, wage growth picking up. But in this cycle, uh, because of this uh, restructuring happening in an accelerated manner, and we are hitting that low level of unemployment much earlier in the cycle, 
we think it should be assumed to be about 60 to 150 basis point higher, uh, depending upon how bad is the uh, permanent job losses that are going to incur in different sectors. So, you know, call it around uh, five and a half percent is when you should see uh, wage pressures picking up. Uh, and then it is uncertain about, uh, un there's uncertainty around what is that, uh, you know, part of the workforce, which is, uh, which is really going to be you know, taking time to come back, get retrained. So yep. it will depend upon that range uh, uh, of, of uh, time that it is taking to get back workers to work. Chetan, fascinating stuff. As always, the team coming together and giving us some things to think about. Chetan I there, Morgan Stanley, Chief Global Economist. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.